is committed to truly knowing God and making Him known among those who do not know Him. Why is that? Why are we committed to that? The reason is that we are committed to knowing God and making Him known because that is the very purpose for which we exist. That is why God made us. He made us to glorify Him. And when our souls are truly satisfied in knowing God, and then we tell others that they too can experience joy and be satisfied by knowing Him, then God receives all the glory that He alone deserves. And so how can anyone know God? And I really mean that anyone. How, How can they know God? The only reason any of us can know him is because he has spoken. He has made himself known through the pages of his word. So the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. And it is the authority in our lives and in this church. And so we gather on Friday mornings and it is all about the word. And so we read the word. We pray the Word. We sing the Word. We preach the Word. We listen to the Word. And then we respond to the Word with lives of worship. So God reveals and we respond. And when that is happening, we are worshiping. We are valuing Him, made possible only because His own Spirit lives in those who trust in Christ alone. And then this word, through the power of his spirit, it begins to shape our lives so that we are then conformed. And and the image of God that all of us have begins to be conformed and more closely resembles the true image of God. And it happens all as we focus on his word, as we know God and make him known. And so the last few months as we've been studying in the book of Joshua, That's what this has been all about. It's been about us learning how we can truly glorify God by living lives of victory. Victory that we on our own could never have, but victory won by Christ when he died on the cross, was buried and resurrected, defeated Satan and sin and death itself, and now gives us victory that will one day be fully consummated when we're with him in the final promised land forever in the new heavens, the new earth. And this happens on a day-to-day as we wait for that final consummation. As we're following him every day, we're drawing near to Christ and we're enjoying his presence. And that gives us joy. And then we can tell others, hey, come have joy with me. You're missing out. Come and see that God is good. And we have seen week in and week out in our study in Joshua, a series that we conclude Today, as we look at chapters 22 through 24, these last three chapters, as as we close our study in Joshua today, we're reminded that week after week we have seen how every single narrative, every single episode in this story is pointing to Jesus and in his gospel, it's all fulfilled. And so knowing the Old Testament is important so that we can then understand the New Testament and when Jesus came. And so this final unit, chapters 22 through 24, is just that, a unit. These three chapters go together. So we're going to look at them 
as a unit this morning. And they have one primary truth that's being revealed. And so we'll look at that here. So as we look at this, we know where our thoughts are being guided by the primary truth in this long section. And so the main idea for today, the truth here in these three chapters is that in light of God's grace, we are called to respond with worship. So in light of of the goodness and the kindness, so in light of God's grace towards us, we are then called, we are then commanded to respond to his grace with lives of worship. So remember the context. I know it's been several months. Took a break for Christmas, and so a lot of you weren't here then. So I'll remind you briefly the context in the book of Joshua. Everything here is that God has shown his overwhelming grace to his people. It was God who gave them victory over their enemies. It was God who restored them after they rebelled against him. It was God who gave them the good land. It was God who said, this is your inheritance. It was all God's work, and it's all been grace that you see in the book of Joshua. The Israelites did not deserve God's goodness. They could never hope to earn God's goodness. They didn't have to earn God's approval. They already had God's approval because God had already redeemed them from slavery. God had already entered into a covenant relationship with them. They already knew God. They already had the tabernacle, God's presence with them. And so they already had God's promises and blessings and his grace and relationship. They had already experienced all of this in God. And now that they're in a covenant relationship with God, the book of Joshua closes. And it closes by asking a question. A question that all of us need to seriously consider. The question it closes with is, how will you respond to God? How will you respond to God? So this book is closing with the focus on the fact that we have to make choices. That's a theme, making a choice to truly follow God. Now, as we've seen in Joshua, God is clearly sovereign. He says, I'm giving you this land. I will drive out the enemies. He makes the sun stand still. He, he does all these wonders. And so it's God who is sovereign. Joshua is clear on that. And yet, the book closes, emphasizing the fact that you and I have a responsibility and that we are the ones that have a choice to make and we're accountable for the way we live our lives. And so God's sovereignty, which is absolutely true, upheld, and our church affirms that because the Bible teaches it. So God's sovereignty does not remove our accountability before God. And there is a divine tension here that we talk about often. And by faith, we trust our God, and we maintain this tension that God is sovereign in all things, including salvation, and yet we must make a choice. And so whenever you have a text that emphasizes human choice, we're going to talk about that. When a text emphasizes God's sovereignty, we're going to talk about that because it's in the Bible. And these last three chapters are emphasizing the fact that we must make a choice. So I remind you of the main idea of these chapters is that in light of God's grace, we're called to respond with worship. And the only true response to God, as we're saying here, is worship. God made us to worship. 
So there is not one second in any day that you are not worshiping. We are creatures designed to worship all the time. Every second of every day, our thoughts, our desires, our our behaviors are oriented around something. Our desires are oriented around something that we're constantly ascribing worth to. So we're always giving value and finding worth in something, significance and joy and comfort and purpose. We're finding it in something all the time. And so you can't turn off worship. And so this is a worship gathering, yes, and we gather together to express our value for Jesus. But then as the church gathers, she also scatters. And we continue to worship every day. We, we continue to value Jesus with how we live. So all of life is meant to be worshipped. So Paul writes a church in Corinth. He says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All of life is meant to be lived on the altar before God of worship. So let's see what these last three chapters in Joshua reveal about worship. So we'll look at what this text reveals about it. Three of them, three primary truths and one per chapter. So chapter 22, what we're seeing here is that worshiping God is choosing to keep unity. So number one, if you're taking notes, worshiping God is choosing to keep unity. Let's read that in chapter 22, read verses 1 through 6. And at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Hashab of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, where Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and love that Moses, servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. So Numbers 32, where Joshua was not leading yet, they were in the wilderness, Moses was, was the leader. Three, well, actually two and a half. So the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh were given their inheritance, their land, on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, when they were under Joshua about to go and defeat the enemy and take the whole land, these two and a half tribes could have just hung out. They're like, hey, we're good. We already have our land. It's already allotted, and it's already conquered, and we can just hang out here on the east side of the Jordan River. But they didn't do that. What they did is they, 40,000 of their warriors crossed the Jordan River with the other nine and a half tribes, went into the west side of the Jordan River, and these two and a half tribes, their warriors helped their brothers defeat the Canaanites. And so for seven years, they fought alongside of their brothers to help them conquer their land, even though theirs was already done. It was already accomplished. And so you're seeing here a commitment 
of these two and a half tribes to help fight the enemy with their other brothers. Now that the land is settled, now that the enemy is subdued, these two and a half tribes, their work is done. And so now he says, you've been faithful. You kept your word and you helped your brothers defeat the enemy. Now go home. Now go back across the Jordan River to the east side and go back to your families that you haven't seen for seven years. Go back and, and settle your land and go home to your tents. And so he sends them back. But as they're leaving, he reminds them, reminds them, love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and cling to God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. And so these two and a half tribes, these warriors go back home. So when they arrive across the river, the first thing they did was they built this huge altar. It says in the text, of imposing size. And so they built this very large, very impressive altar, and they put it right on the border, right on the river, where the the people on the east side, their brothers and sisters, could see this huge altar on the west side. Now, the Israelites, the nine and a half tribes on the west side, see this big altar, and they weren't impressed. They were outraged. They're like, who do they think they are? They they can't build a temple or an altar. That's against God's word. God revealed that there's only one altar. And the one altar is in Shiloh, in the tabernacle. And that is the only place where sacrifices can be offered. Only there. And so God made it very clear that his presence was in the tabernacle. And so these two and a half tribes are way out of line and have no business building an altar. And these and the other half tribes on the west side are not happy at all. Read verse 12 and see what happens. And when the people of Israel heard of it, again, this large altar, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Imagine, they just spent seven years side by side fighting the enemy, and now they go across the river, and, and now they're fornicating spiritually, they build this altar, and now they're like, oh, now we're going to go kill our brothers. Now we're going to go hold them accountable because they're breaking God's law. This is not okay. And so they're gathering to go attack their brothers, their sisters, and hold them accountable for this great evil. They were zealous for God's holiness. They were zealous to uphold God's word. They were going to hold their brothers accountable. But before they attacked, they sent a delegation of 11 men. And so 10 chiefs of these 10 tribes on the west side, and also Phinehas, who was the son of Aaron, who was a high priest. And so these 11 men go and have a conversation with their brothers and say, what do you think you're doing with this altar? And so what, what happens is, the tribes on the west, on the east side, rather, say, no, 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 no. You're confused. Let, let's read about that. First, let's read in verse 19 and pick up there what's happening when they confront their brothers. It says, but now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. And so they're saying, don't rebel with this altar. But listen to what they're saying. They're saying, if there's a problem with being on the east side, then come across the river and come with us and we'll give you land. We'll move over. We'll, we'll scoot in so, so you can have a seat. People in the back having to stand up. We'll, we'll make room. They're saying, we'll give up land. We'll, we'll give up cities. We'll give up our economy. We'll give up money and wealth to accommodate you because we love you. Please don't do this. Whatever it takes, we'll sacrifice so you can come and live with us. But here's where I say that in this amazing display of love, these two and a half tribes of half Manasseh and of Reuben and Gad explain and say, no, no, you're, you're, you're confused. That altar is not what you think it is. Yes, it's big and impressive, but it's only a symbol. We never have and we, and we don't ever plan to offer a sacrifice on that altar. We built it as a witness, as a copy, a replica of the real one that is in Shiloh, which really is a replica of the real one that is in heaven. And so they're making a replica. It's just a witness. And so they're saying, we're not rebelling. And if we are, then you can hold us accountable and you can kill us because we deserve it if indeed we're rebelling. But God knows our heart. He's our witness. This altar is not for sacrifice. It is only a symbol that we're part of the people of God. Both sides of the river, we're one people. And so this altar points to the real one. And so this delegation, how do they respond? Verse 29. It says, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God stands before his tabernacle. They're saying, far be it from us, we would never rebel. This is not for sacrifice. And jump down to verse 33. And it says, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land of the people of Reuben, people of Gad were settled. And so it says that they were pleased. Like, okay, this is good. I'm glad we talked. I'm glad we worked it out. Because otherwise I had to kill you. So I'm glad they didn't have to kill you. Because you're not rebelling. This is good. It was good in their eyes. Took the report back to Israel and everyone rejoiced. And said God has delivered them. Because there's no evil here. And these brothers went and they worked it out. They kept their unity. They didn't jump to conclusions. They didn't go attack. They went and had a conversation and said, this is what it looks like to me. What's going on, brother? And they said, no, no, no. This is what it is before God. And they said, this is great. This is what it's like to be the people of God. This text is showing us how to keep unity and how unity is an act of worship before God. Unity is a result. Hear me. Unity is simply the byproduct. You can't manufacture it. You can't 
fake it. Either you have it or you don't. And unity is a result. Result of what? Of people who are experiencing grace and truth. When the people are experiencing grace and truth, the result is unity. And in the story, you see both. The nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan River were zealous for truth. They were zealous for God's holiness. They were going to hold their brothers accountable. They cared about things like integrity, things like holiness and purity. It mattered to them because it should. It matters to God. But they were also equally zealous for things like grace and love. And so they didn't jump to conclusions. They went and had a conversation first and said, what's going on? And so they showed grace and truth. And Jesus came and he embodies both. Jesus came in spirit. He came full of spirit in truth and in grace. When we speak to each other and we speak truth but with no grace, So when we speak truth with no grace, you know what that's like? That's like heart surgery with no anesthesia. It's spiritual heart surgery where you're cutting someone open to help them. So assuming that the person needs heart surgery. And so they need that incision. They have to be cut open. There's a problem. But when you speak truth to help and you have no grace, it's literally cutting them open with no anesthesia. You're going to kill that person. You're going to crush their spirit. And it's not Christ-like. But on the other side, when, when we want to show grace, but we don't want to speak truth, that's like saying, I know they have a heart condition, but I don't want to cut them. I don't, wanna, I don't want to do the incision because... That's not very kind. And so leave them alone with their bad heart condition. Not helpful. You're leaving that person in a bad condition. They need to hear truth. And yet, they need to hear it with grace. This is is what we're seeing with people of Israel. This is how we should be. Those of us who know Jesus have received grace. And so we should display the character by speaking truth. With grace. And so, how does this work practically in a faith family? How, how does this actually work? Let me give you some thoughts. One is commit to sanctification. You're like, well, that's a big thought. Sanctification is not a big word. All it means is the process of being more holy, the process of growing and being more like Jesus. And so, if every person in this room is committed to sanctification, we're all committed to lives of purity and integrity, we're all committed to being more like Christ. If we all commit to sanctification, then you know what's going to happen? Whenever someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I don't know about that attitude. Are you sure you're walking with Jesus? Because I know that my brother's committed to holiness and he knows that I am too. I'm going to respond well to him. And I'm going to say, well, what have you seen in me? And he will say whatever it is. And I might say, you know, there's some truth to that. I might have to say, you know what, you're right, brother. And because we're both committed to sanctification, I'm going to receive that. But if someone is not committed to things like holiness and integrity and purity, when a brother comes and says, hey, are you sure you're okay? Because what I'm seeing here doesn't seem like it's very biblical. 
that person is going to explode and say, who do you think you are judging me? Step off. You're not going to respond well. Why? Because the, because the person who has a problem is not committed to sanctification. So they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear truth. And even if there's grace, they don't want to hear truth. And so we have to all commit to sanctification, but also we need to commit to speaking. We need to all commit to speaking to each other, speaking truth with grace. We need to be a church that is truly open to hearing truth because none of us is above it. We all need daily correction from God's word and from his people. All of us. No one is above this. We're all desperately needed. We must be committed to having conversations that sometimes are uncomfortable, necessary. Whenever we're kind of hanging around and I listen to people talking and it's meaningful and it's not just about the biscuits and the tea and it's not just about the weather or sports, but I'm listening to meaningful conversations that are spiritual, it blesses my soul. I love it. We should be a church that is focused on speaking spiritual things and truths to each other with saturation of grace. Will you commit to that? Commit to receiving it. Is there someone in your life, even right now, that God's Spirit is bringing to your mind and you can see this person's face in, in your mind's eye? Is there someone that you know you need to go speak to? Because when you see that person, your stomach kind of turns, you kind of get a bad taste in your mouth, and you want to walk the other way. Who do you need to go speak to this week? If no one, praise Jesus. But if there is someone, resolve to commit to your sanctification to theirs and commit to speaking to them. Go to your brother or your sister. Also commit to sacrifice. Commit to sacrifice yourself. If we're going to have unity, we have to all commit to sanctification, all commit to speaking to each other, and all commit to sacrificing for each other. We have to. Because these ten tribes on the west side, they were willing to give up land, give up money, give up their future inheritance would be diminished because it would be extra people living in it. We must be people who are willing to sacrifice sacrificially love each other. Love is not just an emotion. Love is sacrificially meeting someone else's needs. And by the way, just heads up, if you're new here, if you're considering membership or being part of this faith family, let me just give you a disclaimer. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Now, not on purpose. No one here is going to go intentionally go attack you. Hopefully not. But we're human. And a lot of times hurt people hurt people. And so when you commit to a people of God, you are committing to sacrificially love. You're, you're committing to forgive others. No one here is perfect. We're being sanctified by the Spirit, but we're not there yet. And so in the process, we love each other. We grow together. We forgive each other. And we commit to following God the way we're seeing here in the scriptures. Whenever someone is dirty and you help clean them up, guess what happens to you? You get dirty too. Jesus came and he got dirty. 
So this is the reality of having relationships is that we love each other sacrificially. We forgive each other because it glorifies God. It's an act of worship. And so this first truth here from chapter 22 is that keeping unity is an act of worship before God. Second one, worshiping God is choosing to keep fighting. So first one is we choose now, now we're talking about choosing to keep fighting. So let's read in chapter 23, verses 6 through 8. And let, let's see here what we're seeing. Therefore, be very strong to keep all, to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. You may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Okay, so there's verse, verse 8. So what we're seeing here is Joshua calls a meeting. So if you look in the first few verses that we're just kind of summarizing, is Joshua calls all of the leaders from all the tribes, and he has this meeting with them. And he's talking to them, and he's saying, I'm old. He's 110 years old. And he tells them, be strong. Just like in chapter 1, God spoke to Joshua and said, be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servant. And so Joshua heard, be strong, courageous, and stay close to God's word. Now Joshua's telling his leaders, be strong. He tells them, be courageous and stay close to God's word. He says, cling to God. And he says, love the Lord your God. And he tells them to continue fighting against these enemies that are still there in the land. And so as acts of worship before God, first we have to keep unity. But then we have to keep fighting against the the reality that we're not in heaven yet. And there are still enemies to be fought. And so we worship by continuing to fight. And he reminds these new leaders. He's passing on the mantle of leadership to them. And he says, keep trusting God. Keep loving and clinging to God and completely drive out the enemy from the land. And he says in this same chapter, he says, if you refuse to keep fighting against the enemy, if you get complacent and, and you don't really fight against the enemy, it says that there'll be a snare to you. A snare is a trap. He's saying, if, if you're going to keep fighting they're going to become a trap to you and you'll fall for their idols and you'll be ensnared and you'll, you'll become a slave to evil and you drift away from God. So he reminds them that if they refuse to obey, this is in verse 16, same chapter. He says, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. And so God has made good promises to his people, but they need to obey to be able to truly take hold of those promises, which involve continuing to fight against the enemy. So let's just be honest this morning. We're in a battle. Don't forget that. As you go about your daily life, driving in your car, going to work, taking care of your children, cleaning your house, as you just live your life, remember that you and I are in a spiritual battle, where there are real spiritual bullets flying around. And so Joshua fighting against the enemy is corresponding to our battles that we have against our sinful desires that must be waged with the power of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. 
And so we must continue to fight against our own temptations and our own desires that aren't aligned with God's word. How do you fight? How does that work? We fight with truth. That's how we fight. We fight with truth. And so if we're not actively reading God's word, which is the sword of the spirit, that's how we fight back, is we fight back with the truth of who we are in Christ. We fight back with knowing that we are forgiven and that we are redeemed and God can and will deliver us. And so if we're not meditating on God's word, if we're not feeding our souls from it, then you don't have the sword of the spirit. You're, you're not going to be very successful in fighting if you're not actively in God's word. So whenever someone falls, quote unquote, into sin, I can guarantee you every time that they had drifted away from God's word. Because now you're trying to fight with no sword. So when we continue to fight, God is glorified. The same spirit that resurrected you spiritually empowers you to keep fighting. He gives you the strength to continue to not give up. And so are you struggling today? Don't raise your hand. Because in some ways you all are. Some more than others, maybe, but all of us have our struggles. Don't give up. Don't you dare give up. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Continue to cling to God as we read. Continue to love him. God is glorified when we do that. The more that we enjoy Jesus, the more that we're empowered to fight against the enemy. And so our battle is a lifelong one. It will never end until God calls you home where he returns. But that's okay. Because we can continue to fight and have daily victories. And maybe tomorrow you'll have a bad day. But God is still there and he can empower you. And so worshiping God is continuing to fight as we focus on his truth. Lastly, worshiping God is choosing to keep fighting while keep serving. And so worship God by continuing to serve. So we keep unity, and we fight against our sin, and we serve. You see it in chapter 24. That's the theme of, of we'll read the whole chapter. Let's read the first verse. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And so he calls all the leadership, and he calls all of Israel to come in Shechem, a city of refuge. We learned about them last week. And he talks to them. Now, in our homework this week, we'll look at this chapter. It's actually a covenant renewal ceremony. We don't have time this morning, but we'll, we'll look at what that means for us in our groups this week. But what we do see here in the first part of this chapter, verses 2 through 11, it's God is describing his redemptive work. And so what he's done and his grace towards his people is 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 being just listed off. And so he talks about how God chose Abraham. And made promises to him how God then blessed Abraham and his descendants. And God saved them from slavery. And then it was God who then blessed them when they were in the wilderness and protected them. And it was God who led them to the promised land. And then it was God who defeated all their enemies. And it was God who gave them an inheritance. And so everything is about God. So God's the main character in the Bible. It's not you or me. It's not about us. It's about him and what he's doing in redemption to show how glorious he is. And so after there's a recounting of all that God has done and how he's in a relationship with his people, they've been redeemed. Verse 14 says, now therefore. So in light of all of these blessings, all of God's grace, 
his redemption. Verse 14 says, read verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that, are your, that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers who served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We have a choice to put away our idols and worship God, or we have a choice to delight in our idols. But Joshua says, I'm going to serve God. And then verse 19, in the same chapter, after everyone says, yes, we'll do it, we will serve God. And Joshua says, but Joshua said, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Powerful, strong verse that's emphasizing that God is holy and that he is jealous. God will not stand for a rival. And by the way, we're the same way. And when we hear the word jealous, we think, oh, that's a bad thing. Oh, he's such a jealous husband. No, when we're talking about God being jealous here, what this means is that he will not stand for a rival. And so husbands, would you want another man flirting with your wife? No, right? No. Do you want a rival for your wife's affections? No. Will you stand for that? I hope not. In the scriptures, the people of God, there's this imagery of a wife he loves, that he's committed to, and that constantly goes and commits adultery and cheats on God. And God is saying, I'm jealous. I don't want a rival. I want all your heart. So God is one to share your heart with an idol. God wants all of your heart. He wants all of your affections. He doesn't want to share you. Why? Because it's good for you. Because it's good. Because when we share our heart with idols, then we're not glorifying God. We're not fulfilling our purpose. We're not going to have joy. It's because God loves us. He says, I'm jealous. He says, I'm holy. And so this verse here is emphasizing that the fact that God can forgive sinners is a miracle. It's grace. It's absolutely astounding because because God's holiness alone, he does not forgive. But our God is all holy, but he is also grace. He is both. So because he is all grace and all holiness, he is able to then forgive only because there would be a sacrifice that would happen many years later with a person named Jesus. And they were living, waiting for Messiah. And now we know that he has come, but always has been, always will be by faith alone. And so they were saved by faith, just like we are saved by faith. We don't serve God to get approval. We already have it. We serve God because we have approval from God, a heart overflown by grace. So as we close, I'll ask you this. Are you serving God? And we serve God by serving others. So you don't serve God by serving yourself. You serve God by serving others.
And by the way, we all serve. We do. We serve ourselves or, or we serve others, but we all serve because we're made to, we're designed to. And so when we serve God, we are glorifying him out of hearts that are overwhelmed by grace. So if you don't desire to serve, then you need to begin with that, is do you understand how much grace you've received? When that happens, the natural overflow is sacrificial serving of others. May we be a church. May we truly be a church that daily is enjoying Jesus individually and collectively so that we can keep unity and then we can keep fighting against our sin and keep serving for his glory. Will you pray with me? Our Father, you are so good. We thank you for the gift of our life and our salvation. We thank you that we can serve you. And when we serve you, you fill our lives with fruitfulness and fulfillment. I pray that we would be a church that serves so that we can experience your joy and your pleasure. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is united, as we saw in your word today, that our desire is to have unity and help us to keep fighting against our sin so that we can then be, see ourselves as approved in your eyes. And it's all about your grace and for your glory. And we pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.